Hope y'all are doing well. We are uh, in a study of the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 27. Uh, we'll be at verse 38. Before we, we jump into there, I want to read something to you. Um, today is the Sunday before Easter. So as we've been going through the book of Matthew, if we were to actually find the actual place, which is today, which is Palm Sunday, it would be back in chapter 21. And this is kind of what's happening uh, as we're going into today. So today's Palm Sunday, and we've got a week till Easter. And if you look back, back to Matthew 21, this is what's going on. Uh, the disciples had gone and done what Jesus had directed them to do. And it says they brought the donkey and the colt, and they put them on, uh, on, and they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spreading their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So this is, this is the scene the week before Easter as Christ is entering the city. And it says, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee. So that's the scene of going into uh, this entire kind of week. Uh, we're going to fast forward significantly to Matthew chapter 27. We've been going in Matthew 26 and 27 through the last kind of couple days of Jesus. And so we have, uh, in, the, in the narrative, in the history narrative, uh, gotten to where he's, he's been tried by the Roman soldier. The Jewish soldiers are Jewish people. He's tried by the Roman soldiers, brought him up to the cross. He's carried his own cross. They've nailed him, and then they've just hoisted him up on the cross and sat him there. Uh, and that's where we are in the narrative. And so uh, we'll pick up, obviously, next week. We're going to look at the rest of, the, of, of his short uh, six hours or so on the cross today. And then we'll pick up in the narrative uh, with Good Friday um, and what happens in between the resurrection. So we invite you to all be here for this coming Friday as we look at the kind of the rest of Matthew until we get to 28. And then, of course, on Easter next week, we'll be looking at chapter 28, which is the resurrection where everything, everything in history changes. So uh, anyway, that's what we'll be doing. So if you have a Bible, as I said, you can go to Matthew 27, 38, and we'll start there. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to jump in. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for today. I, I pray, God, as we look at your, your word today and we look at um, these last six hours of your life and, and what happened and what you said and what you, um, who you talked with on the cross, that um, the truths of all the, of all the things that come out from the cross would really make an impact on our life. And up until the very end of your life, the last six hours while you were in the most excruciating pain ever, physically and even spiritually, as you're receiving the full wrath of God. You're still, you're still teaching, and that's just amazing. And I pray that as we hear the things that you say, God, that we would um, we take pause and listen and really consider the depth of the truth of them. We love you, Lord, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm probably going to be drinking water a lot. Um, my voice is gone from allergies, and I went to the spring football game yesterday with the Gamecocks and kind of yelled a little bit because of excitement. So uh, I'm going to do the best I can for us today. Uh, as I said, we're in Matthew 27. Now, if you look at Matthew 27, 38 through 50, uh, red letters means Jesus said it, and we only have one little specific time in verse 46, um, the famous uh, cry of desolation 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so as I was looking at this and studying this, I thought it would be good for us as we're looking at 38 through 50, which is our text for today, uh, for us to instead of just kind of focusing in on that one is to kind of take a big step back, and I've kind of looked at all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, really, Matthew, Luke, and John, and looked at all the sayings that Christ says on the cross. He says seven different things. I've put them in chronological order, and we're going to look at all seven of those things that he says on the cross uh, and use that as a teaching point as we're looking at this. So Christ is on the cross. He's got six hours left, and he says seven different things in this little six-hour span. Uh, And so I want to look at those seven different things that he says and use those as as teaching points that Christ wants us to know as we're going into these last couple days. So look at verse 38. It says, Then two robbers uh, were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And as we remember, uh, verse 37 uh, is where they had just put the charge against him. And so he just got put on the cross. And as he's getting put on the cross, if you look, uh, you don't have to, I'll just read it to you. But in Luke chapter 23, uh, in verse 32 and following, says that, There were two criminals that were led away to be put to death with him. They came to the place that is the skull. Uh, There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. It's very similar to what we looked at last year. And as that's happening, right there in the very beginning, in verse 34, it says, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the middle of being unjustly murdered, Jesus Christ looks out at the crowd and he, he prays. He's, he's actually talking to the Father. He's not talking to them saying, I forgive all of you. Instead, in that moment, he's looking at, at the Father and he's praying, which is quite interesting. In the midst of the worst time of his life, he's praying. Definitely a pattern for us. And as he's praying, he's pouring out forgiveness because of the forgiveness that we have received in Jesus Christ. If we're in Christ uh, for confessing our sin We can look at Christ and let that be our pattern because in the worst time of his life against the offenders that are actually in the middle of doing it to him, he is pouring out forgiveness. That pattern is being given to us. And we are able then, because Christ has forgiven those, even in that moment, setting an example, Father, forgive them. We can do the same thing, that whenever people in our minds don't deserve the forgiveness that we should extend, and of course they do because Christ has extended forgiveness to us, we can be able to forgive them as well. Jesus is looking at the seed of faces that are kind of looking at him and deriding him and mocking him. If you look at verse 39 in Matthew, it says the two robbers were on him left and right. We know that uh, at least one of them was certainly mocking him and and saying uh, pretty horrific things. If you look down at verse 41, we know that also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders were mocking him. So they were there making sure he was dying and they were saying all kinds of things. And then you also have people in verse 39 that were walking by. You have the passers-by uh, so we know that Jesus was crucified outside of the city gate. So you know, they were in Jerusalem. They took him past the city gate. They took him all the way outside to the place of the skull. And so this was probably at an area where just travelers walked by. So there were lots of different people present there. You've got the, the soldiers. You've got the passersby that they didn't really come to see this, this show. They was just walking by, going from one place to the next. You've got the chief priests and the elders. You even got the two criminals beside him. All of them, except for one of the criminals beside him, mocking him, deriding him as it says, wagging their heads at him. I'm not really sure what that looks like, but they're wagging their heads at him, uh, which is actually prophesied. We'll, we'll talk about that later. All these things are going. All these sea of faces are looking at him and mocking him. And Jesus in this moment looks to his father and prays and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If there ever is an example of how to extend forgiveness to the offenders in the moment, it's right here. 
Spurgeon's looking at this and he says, It was not a prayer for enemies who had done an ill deed years before, but for those who were there and then, right in that moment, murdering him. Not in cold blood did the... Not in cold blood did the Savior pray after he had forgotten the injury and could the more easily forgive it. But while the first red drops of blood were spurting on the hands which drove the nails, while yet the hammer was bestained with crimson gore, his blessed mouth poured out the fresh warm prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If our Savior might have paused from intercessory prayer, it was surely when they fastened him to the tree, when they were guilty of the direct acts of deadly violence to his divine person. He might have then ceased to present petitions on their behalf, but sin cannot tie the tongue of our interceding friend. Oh, what comfort is here. You have sinned, believer. You have grieved his spirit, but you have not stopped that potent tongue which pleads for you. And I would even add, even now, as Romans 8 says, if there is ever a time where we can see someone who is having the direct acts against them, of intercessory prayer saying, Father, forgive them. It's Christ. What an example to us that, that just screams out, no matter what offense has been done to you, it doesn't match what's been done to Christ in this moment. And even in this moment, he's extending forgiveness. Now, this, this forgiveness that he's extending is a pattern or an example of what ours should look like. It doesn't mean that everybody in that moment was actually forgiven of their sin and get to go to heaven. They still have to confess Christ, repent of their sin, etc. So we should realize that this is what our forgiveness should look like. This is the example. Jesus in this moment sets the example of what forgiveness should look like. Now, I said there's seven things. And the whole time, I mean, just let this thing kind of astound you. He is in the most excruciating pain of his life. And he's still teaching. This is, this is crazy. Setting the example for us of what it looks like to forgive. And then you have two robbers, verse 38, that were crucified uh, with him, one on the right and one on the left. Now, we're going to have to look to a different text to be able to see what's going on. So if you look uh, over again in Luke 23, starting at verse 39, it says, One of the criminals hanged, uh, railed against him, or railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So we see that there's a desire for salvation. Immediate salvation, not eternal salvation, immediate salvation. Get me off this piece of wood. We all have a deep desire to be saved. And then the other rebuked him saying, do not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. Even in the question, it's implicit. Do you not fear God? So there's already a root of that must mean he does. That, that first root of the, the fruit of there's going to be salvation present. If, if there's anyone here that is looking for or desiring salvation, there must be, like this man, a, a fear of God that leads unto salvation. And it says, um, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed, uh, justly, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. We have sinned. We've done wrong. And this is what should happen. But this man has done nothing wrong a a, a huge awareness of this man on the cross that christ is is innocent and he said jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom and in verse 43 he said to him truly i say to you today you will be with me in paradise so that's the second statement that christ says on the cross truly i say to you today you will be with me in paradise there's two robbers as the bible calls them beside him 
And everyone in this room, including myself, is going to be one of these two robbers. We're going to be criminal one, the criminal on the left that's hanging there, broken, bloody, dying, with just a few minutes left in his life, and with the last bit of breath that he has, instead of repenting, he's hurling abuse and rejection at the only person that can save him. I mean, what luck it is, and there's no such thing as luck. If there's anybody that can actually forgive him in the last seconds, Jesus is next to him. He's right next to him. The opportunity's golden to actually be forgiven. And instead, with his dying breath, he is blaspheming Christ all the way to the grave. But um, there's also on the other side, criminal two, the guy on the right. He encountered Christ, but in this moment, he expresses a fear for God. He confesses his sin and cries out for mercy. Christ, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then in that moment, Jesus forgives him and offers him eternal life right on the spot. He asked the other criminal if he feared God, and because of that, he has a holy, righteous awareness of who this man is, Jesus. He had no time to do anything else but repent. He couldn't hop off the cross and go live a radical life of 50 years of of radical obedience. So if there's ever a picture in the Bible ever of um, mercy and grace being extended to anyone, it's this particular person. He didn't do anything else. It's salvation by grace alone through faith alone. He did not go and do any works whatsoever. He didn't even get baptized. He didn't do anything. The only, the only thing he could do for the rest of his life is hang there and die. So if there's ever a picture of what the gospel is, it's, it's right here. That salvation comes through grace alone by faith alone. That's all this man could do is hang there and die for the next five, six, seven, eight hours to the glory of God. And in this room, we're all going to be one or the other. Are we going to be the one who represents uh, a, a separation for God, the last dying breath, doing whatever we want? Or are we going to be the robber on the right who then confesses his sin, trusts in Christ, receives forgiveness because of grace alone through faith, faith alone, and is going to spend eternity in paradise, as Christ says, or heaven because he's believed and trusted Christ. I think the main point that we can get out of this particular uh, saying from Christ is this, is that Jesus Christ saves completely. Not only does he save completely, he saves anyone. There is not one person in this room or in all the world that is not able to be saved by Jesus. He saved anyone, no matter how sinful they are, if they cry out like this man on the cross for forgiveness they will surely receive it. So the first thing that we saw, Father, forgive them when they know what they do. Jesus gives the example of what forgiveness should look like in the life of believers. And the second example, he actually physically extends it in that moment to the person beside him and extends forgiveness to the, to the person for a life full of sinfulness who readily acknowledges that he is getting what he justly deserves. And in that moment, he also gets something that he doesn't deserve deserve whatsoever, is the mercy of God where he is forgiven. Keep going, we're going to go to the third one. Um, Verse 39 says that they were uh, wagging their heads, they were deriding him. And in verse 40, it says, You who would destroy the temple would rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. They already said this back in chapter 26. They're quoting John 2, 19, something Jesus said three years ago. I mean, it's just astounding how brilliant 
the memory is of the Pharisees or the, 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 the chief priests. They can remember all the things he said three years ago, but somehow are void of the, the miracles that he did for along the three years as he healed people and forgave them. Uh, we only like to remember what we like to remember, right? The things that build our case and then the things that don't. You know that's true as you interact with your wife or your husband. Um, and, and how you, you can remember the things that they do uh, that you want to remember, but some of the things, the other things, you want to forget those. And same thing with yourself. It just, it just gives a great example of how sinful we can be. I, my wife doesn't do that. I do that. I'm, I'm the sinner, and she's awesome. Uh, didn't want to dig that hole too far. Back to the, back to the text. Um, if you are the Son of God, come down off the cross. So they're looking at him saying, if you're the Son of God, then come down off the cross. This is interesting here. So you've got the people walking by, addressing the Son of God directly. Hey, if you're the Son of God, come down off the cross. And then verse 41, there's, there's an interesting little thing in the text, and it says, so also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him. So you've got those walking by mocking him, looking at him and saying, if you're the Son of God, come down. And also you've got the, the, maybe some of the keyest, keyest, that's not a word, most key uh, people in the world uh, that are responsible for his death mocking him and deriding him. But look at the language that they use when they do it. The, the walkers, the walkers by, the pastors by, look directly at him and in a direct address say, come down off the cross if you can. Here are the chief priests and, el- chief priests and elders. Look at this. Um, not to Jesus, but instead to others. They, in their mind, he's not even worthy of a direct address when it comes to mocking. They don't even say anything to him. They just look around and say, he saves others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe him. I mean, they don't even directly address him with their mockings. They're such cowards. And as we go, uh, in this particular moment, and, and the book of John is where there's a, a, a shift. So all this is kind of going on. And in this particular moment, in John chapter 19, we know that uh, his mother was present. Jesus' mother Mary was present at the cross, as was the disciple whom Jesus loved, who is John. And in John chapter 19, uh, verse 26, it says, I'm going to start at verse uh, 25. So, so it says, But standing by the cross, Jesus, uh, were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas. That's an open, open name for all of you that are having girls. Uh, Clopas is wide open. Um, and Mary Magdalene, and Jesus saw, uh, and when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, that's what he calls himself as he writes this gospel, John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, he looks at his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, that's John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So in this, the fourth thing that he says is this, um, to Mary, woman, behold your son. To John, behold your mother. Now, on the surface, we can say, uh, in the last moments of life, Jesus is wanting to take care of his mother. Big overall principle, you should, you know, be a family person. Love your mom, love your dad, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's a good application. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I think that's appropriate. Uh, also, another way to say it is, this woman is a widow, certainly a needy person. And so, Jesus in the, on the cross is setting an example of taking care of the least fortunate, taking care of the needy around us. Therefore, we know that this is certainly something that Christ wants us to do as an example. Take care of those around us. And as we are taking care, 
uh, meeting physical needs of people. That's the, the, declar- or the demonstration of the gospel's effects on us. We always think of it, I like to think of it because it's easy to remember with two Ds. We declare the effects, or I'm sorry, we demonstrate the effects of the gospel. We meet physical needs, but we also declare the gospel. We tell them of their greatest need, which is Jesus. So declare, demonstrate. Uh, th- that's the way I like to think of it. But I think there's even something bigger, something bigger theologically happen, happening in this, po- in this uh, particular text that we can look at, where he looks at Mary and says, woman, behold your son. He looks at John and says, behold your mother. Jesus was always doing things like this, taking care of people. And here's the interesting point. Out of all the things that he says on the cross, um, the other six could only be said on the cross. This particular one could have been said anywhere else. The Last Supper, anywhere else. He could have made, I mean, he's Jesus, so he knows this is going to happen. He knows he's going to the cross. He could have set this up at any other time to go to John and say, hey, when I go to the cross, I'm going to die. I want you to make sure you take, take care of my mom. Mom, I'm going to give my life for the, uh, for the sins of the world. Make sure that you uh, watch over John. You know, he could, have, he could have done this particular moment at, or thing at any other time. So I think we need to stop and say, why here? Why does he choose to do it on the cross? And I think that's the deeper truth that we can get at in this particular saying. The most important time in Jesus' life, one could easily argue, he's taking care of a detail. Pretty minor detail, maybe, considering what he's going through. I mean, I'm not saying your mom's minor, right? Mother's Day's coming up. Mothers are awesome. We, we wholly affirm motherhood at Remedy. But I think there's a, a big theological thing. I think Jesus has chosen this particular moment when he's hanging on the cross, paying for the sins of the world to stop and take care of of Mary's future. So there's something being taught in there. What is it? And I think it's this. Um, and this is huge. If you ever feel like uh, you're too insignificant, you're too small to ever pray to God to, for him to ask you to help you with any situation or him to be with you or him to guide you because you're too small and who's too big. He's got a whole lot of stuff going on. Here's, here's the point I think of this. He's always willing at any moment, at any what we per, would perceive to be important moments in God's life, to take care of the smallest details of his people's life. He, he specifically chose this time to do it. While he's taking care of something rather large, right? The sins of the world. To take care of his mom's future. And I think that's just a big theological principle being taught to us. Which is this. You are not insignificant to Jesus. By any means. There is not ever a time where you are in his way as his child, asking him to be with you or comfort you or help you or anything. There's not a moment in your life where you can't cry out to God and ask him for help. And I think that this is a huge example of that. Don't ever feel like if you're a child of God, you're inconveniencing your Abba, your, your father, your, your daddy. I mean, there's never a moment where my child can't come up to me and say anything to me and ask me for anything. And if I reject them, it's because I'm sinful. This is how our Father deals with us. And I think that's the pattern that's being shown to us. That's why Jesus specifically chose this particular time. Um, So the chief priests and elders are mocking him, and they're saying, if he trusts God, let God deliver him. He said that he's the Son of God. Of course he is. Uh, skip down to 45, verse 45. I'm still using Matthew 27 as my pattern to go through these. But if you look here at verse 45, it says, Now the sixth hour, 
there was darkness all over the land, the sixth hour. So in the Jewish world, their hours started at 6 a.m. Their day started at 6 a.m. So if it's the sixth hour, you count forward from 6 a.m., that means it's noon. So it's, it's noon. And usually for us, if it's noon, it's really bright outside, right? You're, it's steaming hot. It's so hot, whatever. Uh, and it says it's the sixth hour. And then they tell us the sixth hour because what the rest of the sentence has is, is something that should make us think, well, wait a second, that's not normal. It's noontime. It was the sixth hour, and then there was darkness all over the land. If you have a little footnote, that land is, is actually earth. And so there was an expansive darkness all over. I was reading a commentator and just going to great lengths to help us see that this is not an eclipse because Passovers don't happen at eclipse moments. And this is not just some small little thing going on. This is an act of God, expansive darkness all over the earth happening. And so there's a reason, right? Because the Son of God is from this moment until the ninth hour feeling the full fury of the wrath of God putting on him. And that is without question the darkest moment I think ever in human history. And so we have this darkness that's being happening or that's happening all over all over the land until the ninth hour. So for three straight hours from noon to three AM, which is generally the brightest point of our day, it says this darkness expanding all over. And then in verse forty six, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli Eli Lamasa Bakhthane, what that is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the cry of desolation. Spurgeon says, To be deserted of his God was the climax of Christ's grief. So, just to kind of get a picture, and maybe you've thought about this quite expansively and quite a a bit, but just to get a a good picture of what's going on. We know uh, that the... God is in Trinity, tri-unity, three persons in one, united in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are in perfect communion, and they have always been in perfect community from eternity past to eternity future, right? And so we know that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, lives and exists in as deity and in humanity, 100% God, 100% man. And so there is a moment here where the humanity of Jesus because we know the deity didn't die. But the humanity of Jesus, his hu- as a human, he dies. The, the deity of Jesus doesn't die because he's still, as Hebrews 1.3 says, upholding the universe by the word of his power. But his humanity dies. And in his humanity, and this is, this is very quite confusing, and I, and I hope I'm not confusing you too much. And let me just say, I don't understand it fully either. Right? These are so, very much uh, so deep theologically to try to understand what's going on in this moment. Because... In his humanity, he is feeling, in some level, forsaken by the Father. Something's going on where he knows that there's a, there's a separation. That's why Spurgeon says, um, to be deserted of his God was the climax of God's grief. Now, if we're going to climb up into the, the, the deity of Jesus and asking, is now the second person of the Trinity removed? So, like, there's the first person and the third person over there. The second person in his, his deity is like way over here. He doesn't get to be with them. Uh, that doesn't make sense to me because God's always triune, community, always from eternity past. But in some way, which we can't fully understand, but I think we can at least in hum- human terms understand, the second person of the Trinity in his human form is feeling a separation, a, a desertion, a uh, forsakenness by the Father because of our sin. He's always experienced perfect communion with his father. And now he doesn't. And he's willingly putting himself forward for that. And he's putting himself forward that because of love for us to save us. 
And in this moment, it's, it's so much for him to feel. And I know these are confusing words. He cries out with a loud voice. Now, this cried out, this is the only time in the Bible uh, cried out is being used uh, in this particular form. And it literally means scream. The, the, the commentators maybe don't want to do that, but the, he screams. It's sometimes called the scream of the damned or the cry of desolation while he's on the cross. And he screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's, there's two huge things happening here. Number one, which right on the surface we can all feel, the humanity of Jesus is in some ways, feeling separated from God. Now, it's been taught, and I know these are some of the confusing uh, words in the Bible. It's been taught, and I've heard it, and maybe we, you've even heard the songs that say God's turning his back on Jesus, the Father. Um, is that what's going on? I, I'm not sure, and I'm not sure that if God, the Father, turns his back on Jesus, since he's still omniscient and omnipresent, that it's really doing anything. It's not like, I can't see you now, Jesus. He's God. I mean, he's, he's everywhere. He sees everything. He knows everything. And so it's, it's, it's just a word for us as human to understand. Uh, and the Bible never says he turns his back, by the way. That's why we've changed the hymn that said the father turns his face away to the father has forsaken him because that's the most precise way to say it, I think, biblically. But um, anyway, back to this. I think the better way for us to stand and understand this particular cry of desolation, there's two things. In one real sense, Jesus is feeling forsaken by the Father because he's taking on the sins of the world for our sake, which should only enhance our love for Jesus. But another thing that's going on, which is far more awesome, is he's quoting Psalm 22. It's the first verse of Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so... For all the Jewish people that were there that knew the word, knew the Psalms, Jesus screams the cry of desolation, Eli, Eli, lama samachthane. And they know exactly, that's Psalm 22. What's he doing? And so as you go into Psalm 22, you hear and can see this is the exact um, words that's going on there. And we know that what's going on in Psalm 22 is primarily Jesus is pointing all those people who are Jewish who know Psalm 22 to say, you know Psalm 22? Go read it and memorize it again because what's going on in that Psalm is present before your very eyes. I'm fulfilling the whole of that Psalm right there. And we know that's going on because there's a place uh, and if you read through the Psalm 22, even in verse 7, it says they're literally wagging their heads at him. And so everything's being fulfilled. But if you read some place, oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you saving me for the words of my groaning? I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's being melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a postured uh, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. This is all Psalm 22. It's just amazing how much is going on right here in this present moment. He's pointing to him, and we read that, and we're like, oh, this sounds terrible. David wrote this thousands of years before, describing perfectly what Christ is going through. And it seems really dark. It seems without hope. But if you keep reading, hope explodes out of Psalm 22. And we know the cross just screams hope for us. In verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. 
You, oh you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth, mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And I will tell of, of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. So the primary thing that's going on here, as Jesus de- screams out the scream of the damned, as he's pointing to everybody, he's saying, in one real sense, I am feeling forsaken by the Father. And I don't know that we can understand that fully and theologically. But what we can say is, he's doing that for us. And that should only enhance our love for him. But he's also, in that moment and to us, quoting Psalm 22 and saying, there's hope right here. This, what's happening, provides great hope because I'm saving the world. I'm fulfilling Psalm 22. Now, as we look at this, Spurgeon says this, the saints who have known what what it is to have their father's face hidden from them, even for a brief space, can scarcely imagine the suffering that wrung from the Savior's agonizing cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So just to consider the one person that never, ever, ever deserved to be separated from the Father, like we always do, is being separated, and he's doing it for us on our behalf. That quite, I mean, quite harshly stings my soul. But at the same time, on the cross, I think the one thing, or one of the main things we can get out of this particular saying of Jesus is, on the cross, Jesus is declaring, crying out, screaming to everyone in the world, that there is absolute, ultimate hope in the cross. Because he is fulfilling Psalm 22 among all the other prophecies. And he is the definite Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Kings, Christ himself, performing the only act that can save us. And we have hope now because of the gospel. What an amazing, amazing thing. Let's keep going. Uh, There's another one, which is in John 19. And, uh, well, let me read one verse to you. It says, well, verse 47, and some of the bystanders said, this man is, is calling Elijah. So they're like, why, why, if you read it, you're like, why are they saying he's Elijah? That makes no sense. Why is it Elijah? They're, they had a couple ideas. One, because he said, Eli, Eli, and they just like forgot the rest of it. And they're like, oh, he said Elijah. What was it? So that was one commentator, which sounded silly. The other one was uh, Elijah was the one recorded guy. Well, this, there's two, but one of the recorded guys in the Old Testament that never died. And so they just think, oh, it must be like he's calling Elijah back down. He never died. He, he can come back down and do something. Those are the two ideas. But verse 48, it says, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him something to drink. This is in response to actually John 19.28. John 19.28. After all this, knowing that all was finished, and uh, he said, in order to fulfill Scripture, he said, I thirst. That's John 19.28. So in order to fulfill Scripture, Jesus looks at them and says, I thirst. In response to that, him saying, I thirst, we see verse 48. And one of them at once ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. So they stick a sponge in his mouth and he just kind of sucks the sponge back in. Now, 
We know that before Jesus was offered mixed wine and myrrh, and he didn't take it, and that's because he didn't want to be numb to the pain. He didn't want to be unconscious while he was on the cross. He wanted to be there and be fully there and not feel and, and feel everything that was going on while he paid for our sin. But in this moment, he does ask for it. All of it's over. He's, we've reached the ninth hour. He's about to die. He was on the cross from roughly 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. We're reaching towards the end. And I think the reason why, well, obviously there's no question. The reason why he asks for it right here is just to f- fulfill Scripture. Psalm 69 um, is where it says that, uh, well, I won't flip to it. I don't have time. But Psalm 69, in Psalm 69, there's a fulfillment of Scripture that he's going to, he's going to do this. And Jesus, knowing this, is going to fulfill all Scripture and, and uh, receive this wine at the very end uh, while he's on the cross. Uh, Tim Keller says, when you, the point of this quote is, Christ knows the Scriptures without question. He knows all the Scriptures and he's fulfilling every single one of them because he's God. Tim Keller says, when you, when you prick Jesus Christ... When you stab Jesus Christ, he bleeds scripture. He knew the scripture so well. He thought about the scripture so pervasively. It's so saturated and permeated his whole being and his imagination and his feelings and his will and his knowledge that it shaped him instinctively. The scripture shaped every part of him. His nobility, his courage, his peace, his faith all happened because he was saturated with the scriptures. Jesus can be trusted at any moment. So like the whole time, the father completely entrusts the son to go and do all these things. And as he's doing all these things, trust him to fulfill all the scriptures all the way to the point of death. So here's the main point I think we can get from this. Jesus can be trusted. If God the father can can entrust Jesus to do everything, God the father can entrust Jesus. You can. If God said, I have my full faith in you, son, to go do everything I've asked you to do, to be fully obedient, to fulfill every single prophecy that's ever gone on, and Jesus knows the scriptures, then whatever is going on in your life, you can trust him. Without question, he is the most trustworthy person that you can ever, ever look to. He fulfills all things for the Father, certainly, and I'm not minimizing our problems. We have, we have in our minds, and I think even really, real problems. You can trust him with those. There's an example for us there. All right, back over to Matthew. So, verse 49, they said, let's, say, let's wait and see if Elijah's going to come. And then you get to verse 50, and it says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now, when he cried out with a loud voice, He's going to say two more things on the cross. And I'm not sure Matthew is, is telling us which one. I'm not sure which one he's going to cry out with a loud voice and say. But there's two more things that he does say. The first one comes from John chapter 19, verse 30. And this is awesome. Uh, so they took the jar of wine. They gave it to him. And the verse 30 says, When he had finished, re- received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So that's what John says. He does say one other thing. But let's look at this first one. John 19, 30, it says, it is finished. In the Greek, it's just one word, tetelestai, tetelestai. It is finished. A.W. Pink said, it is finished is but one word in the original, yet in that word is wrapped up the entire gospel of God, all assurance and the sum of all joy. Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus said this like the shout of a conquering warrior. 
an ocean of meaning and a drop of language, a mere drop, for that's all that we can call when we read the word tetelestai. Yet it would need all the other words that could ever be spoken or ever can be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. Finished. It was a conqueror's cry. It was uttered with a loud voice. There is nothing of anguish about it. There is no wailing in it. It is the cry of the one who has completed a tremendous labor and is about to die. And before he utters his death prayer, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he shouts his last his life's last hymn in that one word, Tetelestai. So he screams out Tetelestai, completely changing everything. It is finished. And when we hear, I think the only proper response, well, there's many, but one huge proper response, when we hear Jesus say, Tetelestai, it's finished, paid in full. The debt is completely paid off. As sinners, when we hear that, those words come into our head, tetelestai, it's finished. That just vanquishes guilt and shame in your life. It's so easy for us as we go through life to hear the whispers of the enemy. What about what you did? You know what you did. You should feel terrible. Don't you feel shame about it? But Christ on the cross and all those whisperies of the enemy, Christ is screaming over top of those whispers saying, Tetelestai! All you have to do is keep telling yourself that. Because it's absolutely true. We've already talked about Jesus as trustworthy. So in any kind of declaration or whisper from the enemy saying, oh, but that one thing's not forgiven. You've got Jesus screaming over top of us saying, Tetelestai! It's finished. All of the debt has been paid. So here's the point. The debt is fully paid. It's finished. And when we begin to believe these whispers, we just scream out to the enemy the same way Christ did. It's finished. It's all over. No more guilt. No more shame. God does not want me to live in guilt and shame because of the cross. It's the greatest declaration that he does it. And I can march forward, as John Piper says, in gutsy guilt, preaching the gospel to myself, remembering without question, no more guilt, no more shame, all the things that I've done, I don't have to let plague my life anymore because Jesus screamed out from the cross to tell us die. It's finished. And then there's one other thing he says. Luke records it in Luke 23, and this is, this is beautiful. I mean, this is just utterly beautiful. He begins with a prayer, Father, forgive them, they know what they do. He ends with another prayer, speaking directly to his Father again in verse 46. Father, in Luke 23, verse 46, it was about the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the whole land to the ninth hour, and while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Remember, this word Father is Abba. This is like Daddy. It's the way to say it. There was no address in the entire Old Testament to God the Father ever besides Lord. And the intimacy of saying Father is just so radically different that Jesus presents in the New Testament. He teaches us to address God as Father, not just Lord. And here, 
He looks at him and he yields his spirit. And he's actually quoting scripture again. Psalm 31, 5, uh, the very last sentence of his life. Jesus is bleeding scripture and fulfilling scripture. Psalm, 131, Psalm 31, 5. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is the final decisive decision that Jesus says, I'm going to die. If we see back over in Matthew, verse 50, it says, he cried out with a loud voice again. It could be to tell us die. It could be, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit. And then he says, he yields up his spirit. This is the moment now where Jesus decides to die. Remember, he's sovereign over everything. He's the sovereign king, decides when he's going to be arrested. And he even decides, the Jews don't decide, the Romans don't decide. No one decides when he dies. Jesus decides in this moment, now I'll die. I've taken on the full wrath of the Father. I don't need to hang here any longer. To tell us die. I'm coming home, Dad. I will die now. And then he chooses in that moment to even die. We don't have that kind of sovereign power. I can't just say, I die now. We don't do that. But Jesus does. I die now. He decides even when he dies. Makes the decisive decision. And the King Eternal dies here. Now, when we read this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We have to realize Jesus has to die for a lot of reasons. To show us that he has died in our place, but also for the main reason, which we are going to celebrate like crazy one week from now. You can't be resurrected if you don't die. It's huge. It's kind of obvious, but it's huge. That's the whole point of Resurrection Sunday next week is he was dead and now He's alive forever. And so in this moment where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Jesus looking at death with confidence, the same way we ought to as believers, saying this ought to profoundly change the way I look at death. Jesus looks at them and, and he says, I'm coming home for eternal life. Therefore, we should. He says, Father, he didn't say, Abba, Um, I'm coming to the grave. I'm coming into the darkness unknown. I'm coming up into heaven right now. He literally says, Daddy, into your hands I'm coming. I mean, this is for us our homecoming. We're not going into some nebulous, floaty, cloudy place, riding around with little arrows and baby diapers. That's not what heaven is, right? We're going into our Father's hands who loves us more than we could ever even conceive of. Jesus looks at him and he says, Father, into your hands, Daddy, Abba, into your hands I'm coming. I'm committing my spirit. So the point is this. Jesus dies so that he can be resurrected, so that we can be saved, and gives us a great pattern of what death should look like in the life of a believer. Now here's the way I want to conclude, and I think this is This might be one of the coolest things I've ever seen. I just saw it this week. I've never even thought about it until verse 51. Right after that, and I'm I'm going into our Good Friday text, but it's okay. It's a good conclusion. Verse 51, and behold, the curtain, we've all heard this little story, right? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top 
to bottom. If you've been in church world at any means, if I were going to go to a curtain and I was going to tear it, since I'm not Shaquille O'Neal, I can't reach up to the top and, or minute bowl, that's just a way throwback, and tear it from the top to the bottom, right? Since I'm so challenged vertically, I'd have to grab it from the bottom and if I was really strong, start ripping. So all of us, when we start ripping curtains, especially these massive curtains, we grab it from the, top, from the bottom and we rip and it rips from the bottom to the top. And this particular moment, verse 51, as I said, and the curtain of the temple, which is the temple represents entering into the Holy of Holies, getting into the very presence of God the Father himself. And there's always been this divide. I can't get in there. And now God the Father is grabbing the curtain and grabbing it and ripping it apart from the top saying, all can come in freely to the Holy of Holies and experience the great love of being with God the Father now. God's doing it because ripped from the top. We believe God's in heaven. So here's the crazy thing. This is what I think is awesome. This means that as Jesus was committing himself into the hands of God, at the same time, God's hands were also grabbing the curtain, ripping it from top to bottom, signifying that Jesus is the one who paid the price, gave himself up into the Father. And as the Father is receiving Jesus into the same hands that's holding his son now, is also grabbing the curtain and ripping with those same hands from the top to the bottom and saying, not just Jesus can come in, but all of you can come in now. I mean, this is just insane. Jesus, like the curtain, was slashed, torn, and shredded. And now, because of that, we can be with Christ. Spurgeon looks and says, Now there is an entrance made into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus, and a way of access to God was opened for every sinner who trusts Christ's atoning sacrifice. That's pretty awesome. As the hands of God are receiving Jesus, he's ripping that curtain and saying, not just my son, but now everybody comes in. Through faith, through grace, just like that criminal. And if anyone here would trust Christ. If anyone here says, yes, that's what I want. Believe that Christ took your place. Repent of your sin. Confess your sin. Trust in him. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You also have complete full access. No more shame. No more guilt. Full, complete access to God the Father forever. So I think that the best thing that we can do after we hear that is just worship. I'm going to pray, and however the Lord's leading you, just stand and sing with us. If you don't know Christ, come talk to me. I'll be right back here. I'd love to have a conversation with you. Talk to you about how that curtain being ripped is your way into heaven. But if you are a believer, let's just stand and give him the glory for what he's done. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these things that you say on the cross that teach us all the way to the very end about what it means to follow you and love you and just how much you love us. It's unfathomable. God the Father, thank you as you accepted Christ into your own hands, you ripped that curtain. And not only now receive your son back, but you receive all your sons and daughters back because of Jesus who paved the way. I pray that we would worship you now for all that you do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.